0: Baby Fahodie, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. A oh, baby this is the African Liberation Media. I'm here with brothers Amos and Brother Macaroo. I am Gullah Jack aka Russell, Adrian Swilly. I want to start out by saying at age 90, the greatest sociologist of our time, the venerable Dr. W.B. DeVois, raised a series of questions, love letters to the youth. He said perhaps rhetorically he had been looking for the answers to these questions all of his life. They are chronicled in the classic, The Ordeal of Mansart. Question one, how does integrity face oppression? What does honesty do in the face of deception? Decency in the face of insult and accomplishment meet? How does accomplishment meet despising, distraction, lies in virtue meet brute force. Of course, these questions come out of the context of the African American experience living under the crushing dynamic of white supremacy. Of course, secondly, we want to commend the unflappable sense of justice and integrity of several sisters who've showed courage in the face of the brutality, the lies and the insult, the degradation that uh, several prosecuting attorneys are confronted with, they met uh, in St. Louis. We will deal with that a little later. But I'm also struck by an interview given recently by a sports analysis, sports analyzer, Sister Jamil Hill. She writes, when you walk into ESPN, you better have a sense of who you are. She called Donald Trump a white supremacist. She says her only regret was not saying that Jerry Jones is a white supremacist. Wow. She writes, if you go down or if I go down, I'm gonna be a failure on my own terms. Jamil Hill, her advice, you can be blonde sisters, but you can't be white. Her last point is that Stuart Scott, who iconized the phrase booyah, was denounced for being himself. She says ESPN does not define her. This is a critical lesson to be learned, absorbed, inculcated in the spirit of every young sister who is aspiring to achieve notoriety in corporate America.
1: Gentlemen, take it wherever you want to take it. Bibi Fahodie, Bado Mapapano, African Family. Where is Jamil Hill working now?
0: You know, brother, I really don't know. Uh, but she says, uh, looking back on it, um, you know, had she been not been booted out of uh, ESPN, she would not have found her husband. Uh, she would not be in LA traveling. Uh, the short version of her conclusion is that she's significantly happy. Happier, and that she left ESPN long before she was let go. Wow. Okay.
1: Well, that's a rare uh, breath of fresh air there from a celebrity, no doubt. Uh, we are taping the program on the day before the official Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, which quite frankly, is, in my opinion, a product of uh, the rhetorical ethic. Certainly black people demanded a holiday for years. Um, the power structure uh, finally uh, acquiesced and, and, you know, established it. But it was clearly, clearly a part of the rhetorical ethic. You know, they said, OK, you guys can have the holiday. We'll control the narrative and that's all that really matters to us. So, I wrote a piece on my blog titled The Dr. King We Need in 2020 because unfortunately, most of us do not view Dr. King from the perspective of African centered holistic thinking. We are trapped by uh, Eurocentric fragmentation. So, the title, the subtitle is the continuing continuous fight For Dr. King's legacy. As we gather in 2020 to celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there's a critical need in these turbulent times to focus on the total scope of Dr. King's thought and practices. It is a fact that the heirs of the powerful forces who organized against the efforts of Dr. King in 1967-68 have sought since the 1986 federal establishment of the King holiday to control the narrative of Dr. King's legacy and reduce him to a mere dreamer, to freeze him on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963. We must view Dr. King and all of our significant contributors from the perspective of African-centered holistic critical thinking, thus avoiding the trap of Eurocentric fragmentation. I'm using the term significant contributors because all too often we, we place these uh, great people on a pedestal and, you know, identify them as as heroes. And so so they become something more isolated when we do that, rather than seeing them uh, from people who were driven by moral conscience. You know, you have a you have we have a moral obligation to defend ourselves. Stepping, stepping up to defend ourselves is not heroic. We have a moral obligation because our lives have value. And I think it's, it's important that, that we not, you know, uh, follow this thought process of Eurocentric individualism where we isolate these people as they are isolated heroes versus someone who's connected to the community and someone who's a model for all of us to emulate. And in fact, all of us can do these things we can all be uh, driven by our moral conscience. So uh, one of my subsections is titled some thoughts on Dr. King's most powerful quotes. So here's one of his quotes. Cowardice asked the question, is it safe? Expediency asked the question, is it politic? Vanity asked the question, is it popular? But conscience asked the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but one must take it because one's conscience tells one that it is right. So that's a quote from Dr. King. My Commentary. Martin Luther King, driven by his moral conscience, was one of the most courageous people in world history. He challenged the African-American masses of the Deep South to overcome their fears, thus mobilizing them into action against American apartheid. The grassroots of the South, along with young African-Americans who were mostly college students, became the driving force for civil rights and voting rights. Once mobilized, they risked their lives and livelihoods to reform the United States. Given the current rise of institutional and individual white supremacy, there is a need for people of conscience to overcome their fears and mobilize beyond another drive for reforms to establish the power to neutralize the capacity of white supremacists to impose their will over us. Second quote, True practice is not merely the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. The American power structure, be it moderate, liber- uh, moderate, conservative, or liberal, from George Washington, to George Washington to Donald Trump, has never been interested in the presence of justice. Those claiming to believe in justice for all only want justice for some and no tension from the rest. The victims of injustice must understand this and, and, not, and not accept the absence of tension as a solution to injustice. And this is basically what the electoral process is kind of pushing now, because you have this uh, madman in the White House who has created a lot of tension. And the solution proposed by the other wing of the, uh, the one-party state Essentially, it just wants an absence of tension. They care nothing about the presence of justice, never have, never will, unless they are forced to. Third quote, the problem is so tenacious, this is Dr. King once again, the problem is so tenacious because despite its virtues and attributes, America is deeply racist and its democracy is flawed both economically and socially. Our moral values are, and our spiritual confidence sink even as our material wealth ascends. In these trying circumstances, the Black Revolution is much more than a struggle for the rights of Negroes. It is forcing America to face all of its interrelated flaws: racism, poverty, militarism, and materialism. It, ex- is, it, it is exposing the evils. It is. It is. It is exposing evils that are rooted deeply in the whole structure of our society it reveals systemic rather than superficial flaws and suggests that a radical reconstruction of society itself is the real issue to be faced my commentary the mass movement of the 1960s for justice and power exposed america's interrelated flaws racism poverty militarism and materialism which are systemic Mere reforms of these flaws will never result in the true peace and justice which require power the masses of people deserve. The history of African people in the United States is the struggle is the history of struggle against systems of oppression interspersed with incremental reforms from chattel slavery to the reforms of reconstruction, from the oppression of American apartheid to the reforms of civil rights to the new Jim Crow and other characteristics of the current white backlash. Dr. King suggested that the entire system needed radical reconstruction. That needs to be the goal of the next desperately needed mass movement. So those were just some thoughts that I had. Um, I just picked three quotes out. I suppose I could continue this series ad Infinitum, uh, you know, which I may do by just choosing other quotes and commenting on it. So just some thoughts as uh, we approach the the King holiday, which will be taking place on the day that this podcast is uh, produced, is released, is published.
0: One thing I always enjoyed about Doc was his ability to appeal on the emotional level as well as the intellectual level. I read about a sister in a church who asked another sister while listening to one of Dr. King's uh, speeches, his sermons. One sister asked the other sister, what is that boy talking about? Any other sister deadpan. I don't know, but he sure sounds good. It was quote that illustrates the desire, the need to bring about systemic radical change when he intones the the whole Jericho road needs to be changed where men are fleeced and robbed as they journey along life's highways. We know that the Jericho road was a meandering road uh, where a traveler could be susceptible to murder um, and so forth. Uh, a road that started above sea level, but by the time you reached the Jericho Road that meandered, you would be below sea level. Just one of his quotes. Uh, <clears throat> Glad uh, you brought that out, brother. Glad we are dealing with it because, you know, we need to move away on a daily basis from uh, this sanitized version of King or the vanilla. Venetization, You know, we have to create words because, you know, they're not going to create them for us, you know, to quote Brother Amos Wilson. But uh, very significant in putting King in perspective so that he not be co-opted. Suffice it to say, both parties uh, have picked Dr. King to the bones and will use him uh, for their own personal agenda, even Dabo Sweeney. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Dabo Swine." He said, "Dr. King." I'm quoting Dabo, not a coach, down at Clemson. Dabo says that Dr. King changed the world through love. The you world. know, which is a gross misrepresentation of King. You know, Doc said, uh, "Love without power is weak, anemic. Power without love is callous." That we we're talking about African. Synthesis: the combination of power and love to achieve justice beyond the mere absence of tension. The justice being defined as the the uh, concept of uh, a fair dealing. You know, I don't know anywhere uh, any other way to put it. You know, it's it's it's, it's just fair dealing. Justice. Of a brave man. Um, you know, the great Amos Wilson said he had disagreements with Dr. King, but he admired Dr. King because of his courage, which is one of the reasons why he pays obeisance to King. Uh, Wilson writes, uh, the moment of truth arrives when we're willing to confront certain dangers in order to realize our convictions uh, Stokely Carmichael, who knew King, walked with King. You know, basically said that one of his major contributions was that he taught us to f- face racism without fear. But you know, we can go on and on. But yeah, you know, I'll just discontinue my comments right here.
2: Yeah, the '60s was a time period where many of our leaders were assassinated. Mm and we, we commemorate Dr. King every year because of the holiday that was set up with, as you stated, by Makaroo, the Dr. King that whites feel comfortable with. But we often sometimes forget about Omawali, Malcolm X was also assassinated during this time. And also, we forget about Joseph Oquito, Maurice Impolo, and Patrice Lumumba, who also assassinated in 1960. Now this would mark the 60th year since those three brothers were killed in the Congo by the French and Belgian governments along with the help from President Dwight Eisenhower in the United States. Whenever you reach a point where you are a target to be assassinated, that means that you are an imminent threat to the white power structure just two or three weeks ago, we saw General Soleimani be struck down by a drone, leaving the airport in a convoy uh, outside of Baghdad International Airport. So we know that Dr. King had to represent something that was a force to the European white power structure in order for them to feel he had to be eliminated the same way they felt Gaddafi had to be eliminated. So that's what we have to look at when we talk about the synthesis of a person taking the best out of the individual, as Baba Makaru states, oftentimes we pay attention to the negatives, but we don't take the positives. We can't hero worship um, what we have to do is we have to look at our particular strategy and see what positive things we can extract from an individual. Now, there's some individuals that I would say, yeah, they may represent something positive, but sometimes you don't need to take anything from that person just mm. because of how toxic they really were. Wow. It's... uh. It's like comparing somebody to horse manure. Yeah, it's some vitamins in there, but would you eat it? <laughs> I like it, brother. I love it. So we have to keep those things, those things in mind. And also, we have to re-strategize how we approach uh, what we're doing. And it's interesting because I was having a conversation with the sister, and she talked about black leaders being assassinated and organizations being destroyed because of it. And one of the things that she mentioned, which I thought was a a very, um, it's the first time I've heard anybody bring this to my attention, is the need for people within organizations to get life insurance. So essentially, when the white power structure decides that they want to kill you, at the same time they'll be financing your movement. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. We don't imagine if a million dollars or two million dollars would have been paid out to the Black Panthers when Fred Hampton was assassinated or when Mark Clark was assassinated or even if their families would have received money for their murders. So it's something, something to think about, uh, especially at a time which we're gonna go into another topic in a minute with the rise of white supremacist violence that's taking place, uh, with many of these white supremacists being arrested for plotting to kill and also actually killing black people all over the country.
0: You know, brother, when I listen to you talk, uh, brother, almost the, thing, the name that comes to mind is uh, Joel Spingarm. And uh, years ago, I read it in one of my parents' books. I came across an author by the name of Gunnar Maradol, and he makes a very poignant question in terms of how white supremacy plans to deal with the Negro dilemma. The second time I saw it was in a book published by the great, venerable Dr. Amos Wilson. And the white dilemma was this, uh, gentlemen, how do you oppress? Maintain oppression. And make the oppressed, the, the people that you're oppressing, feel as if you are their benefactor. <laughs> you know, you can move a brother up in order to move him out. Now, this is my dog. I mean, these folks spend time, man, at these think tanks. Yeah, they study us, obviously, like the devil. You know, Jed who was even dealing with uh, purple dye. Because he felt it had some type of debilitating delirious effect on the black psyche. You know, going as far as to spawn um Coretta Scott King. But you know, I'll I'll go we'll come back later on. Let me yeah. leave that alone.
1: Yeah, you know, a couple of couple of things there that the brother almost raised. I mean, one, you know, uh, you know, going back to the assassination of uh Patrice Lemoon, I believe it was I think it was January nineteen sixty one, I think. Uh maybe January 17th. I'm going off memory here. So, but so when when the African the African independence movement started Lumumba became the first significant uh, leader of an independence movement to be overthrown and assassinated. So People might say, well, geez, you know, why didn't they move on Kwame Nkrumah? Why didn't they move on Segatore?" And I think, I think what we have to look at is the strategic location of the Congo in 1960, 61, and its mineral wealth. The Congo is, in fact, the most valuable landmass on the planet Earth, hands down it is the most valuable in terms of mineral wealth but also the 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 one thing that really concerned them of course now this is taking place within the context of the cold war is that if lumumba is able to consolidate his power base in the congo in 1960 61 then the the, the entire liberation of southern africa is escalated by 5 10 you know, 15 years earlier, maybe 20 years earlier, because now, um, the people who are fighting to liberate Angola, they, they have a base which they can operate out of. Okay. And so, and so it, 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 it accelerates the liberation, in my opinion, of, uh, Angola, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, uh, even Azania. So, that's that. That's a critical factor because the United States' focus at that time was, even though they were just sending advisors over there, after the Vietnamese had defeated the French, once again, the almighty French getting defeated uh, at... Dien uh, uh, Bien Phu. Dien being Phu, then the United States said, well, we can't let these little people of color, these little people running around in... Uh, You know, living in bamboo huts, we can't let them defeat the mighty French, so we got to go in and stop them. But if if Lumumba consolidates power and the liberation struggle of southern Africa escalates, the United States would have to make a decision. Do we pull out of Vietnam and send troops to southern Africa to defend the the Portuguese and the white supremacists? That would that, that would have been a critical decision they would have had to make. So they lose something, one or the other. So I'm thinking they, they would definitely give up Vietnam if, if, if they thought that they could save uh, these, these uh, countries, Angola, Namibia, Zania, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, you know, for the global white supremacy dynamic. So we have to understand why it was so critically important to remove Lumumba. Now, two other points, and then we'll move on. In 1965, in my opinion, Malcolm X was the most important person of African descent on the planet Earth. More important than the presidents of countries such as Nkrumah, secretary Julius Nyeri. Why do I say this? Because Malcolm had the capacity to organize a global African liberation movement. His reach was global. He, he influenced people on the African continent he certainly influenced people in the United States. There's no doubt that he would have influenced people in the Caribbean, so that's why he became the more imminent threat uh, to, uh, to the United States. So in my opinion, he was the most important African on the planet, so he had to be quickly eliminated, and you had a bunch of Negroes that uh, willingly participated in that, in that process. In 1968, Dr King represented in my opinion the greatest threat to U- United States imperialism that it has ever faced because he had the capacity to he, he he had been basically virtually kicked out of the black community the the black moderates and liberals uh, his his approval rating was in 1968 was lower than Donald Trump's approval rating is today the only people today go- brother yes Yes. Lower. I mean his, his approval rating was uh around twenty five percent. Dr. King's approval or Time Magazine did a did a survey. So the only the only base that Dr. King had was the Black Radicals, which was represented at that time by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, you know, Kwame Rage, Jamil Abdullah Elamine and Baba Mikasa, Willie Ricks and Ruby Dars Robinson and all of those uh Dory Ladner and uh, and, and and the white the white radicals who were opposed to the war in Vietnam. And what a lot of people don't know about the, uh, the Poor People's Campaign was in uh, this uh, scholar by the name of uh, James Douglas, who talks about the martyrdom of Dr. King and Malcolm. Dr. King's plan was, when he got to D.C. with the Poor People's Campaign, bringing up all these people out of Mississippi and Alabama to D.C., shut the government down he planned to bring in the peace movement to shut the pentagon down that is revolutionary so dr king had to be stopped in memphis he had to be killed in memphis they could not allow him to come to washington dc so i mean so that's why we have to look at the total scope of dr king and and glean from this you know the valuable things uh you know we realized that early on he uh, was deeply rooted in the American dream, you know. Thought that they, that you could integrate uh, into what he eventually saw as a burning house. So, and and then the other thing is that what we don't stop and think about is Dr. King and Malcolm were both only thirty-nine years old. Look, 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 look at the, look at the ages of of these people who are running the world today. I mean, you know, Macron, uh, Macron, and Trudeau up there in Canada. But but look at look at Donald Trump. Look at the people who are running for president, to be president of the United States. These these people are ancient. And, and and these guys, these brothers were only 39 years old. So, I mean, I mean, how much development? 39, 49, 59. And I think another thing. Go ahead,
2: bro. Another thing, too, is that a lot of these guys who start off on the wrong foot, so to speak, come from that boule background, and they have a mindset that, you know, we can work with these people, we can work with these people, we can work with these people until they reach a point where they realize that you're never going to be white. <laughs> like you said earlier, like Jamil Hill said, sister, you can be blonde, but you'll never be white. Never be white. And once that once that light bulb goes off, then these people turn from being integrationists or assimilationists to wanting to destroy the system. You know, brother, but
0: King, had he not been unselfish could have faked it. Because they loved him at Boston University. Many of his teachers came to uh, Dexter to listen to his opening sermons. And he thanked them for their contributions in his development. He could have taken a quarter of a million dollar job. Or, you know, developmentally, what might Malcolm had become had the teacher not referred to him as the N word or uh, chastise him by saying, you know, Malcolm being a lawyer uh, was not a realistic option for an N-word. Malcolm has said, you know, uh, I might have been one of those uh, 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 cocktail-sipping bourgeois Negroes, you know, had he said, well, Malcolm, you know, go ahead and pursue your career as a a lawyer. Uh, I mean, both of these brothers did not have to make the ultimate sacrifice. Did not definitely, you know, which is one another reason why we, uh, you know, pay homage to both of these brothers. Um, obviously, innately gifted, you know, one clearly was nurtured by the other. The other was the victim of systemic uh, racism, the breakup of his family, the murder of his father, uh, and just the uh, the personal torture. We're talking about uh, Oma Wally. Uh, Malcolm X, uh, you know, King had greater nurturing, obviously.
2: Uh, well, I think it's, uh, and I talk a little bit about this in um, on my lecture, "Black Greeks, White Masters," where if you look at, for instance, Doctor King and W. E. B. Du Bois, both of them were members of the same fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, and also they both were members of the Boule. That mindset. The mindset of the miseducated Negro as Carter G. Woodson told us about. Because Carter G. Woodson also went through this type of transition uh, which caused him to write that book. Once he was actually fired from Howard University he realized that okay there's a limit to how far I can go into this white world. Come on. And this is what all of them realized. Mm -hmm. Initially they believed that we can be equal, we can somehow coexist, but they have to be educated properly. And I think that the advantage that the Garveys have over the Du Bois early on is that they were never at a point where they could be miseducated like King and Du Bois and Carji Wilson could because of that elitist, background that, they, that elitist background that they come from. So they, they, you're talking about people who were raised in well-to-do families. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be raised in a, a well-to-do family and still uh, not be educated properly. What I'm saying is that when we look through our history, most of these people that come from these type of backgrounds, like the Jack and Jill or uh, the Boulay, or what have you, they are really the gatekeepers that try to mend the fences between the black race and the white race in the benefit of white people. And it takes them to break out of that mindset to start to get on the right track and realize, okay, no, we need self-control, sovereignty, power for ourselves.
0: Yeah. Somebody referred to uh, (coughs) the brothers and sisters you described as the, the classe intellectuals. Uh, we're going internationally now. You know, Fidel Castro Ruiz came from an aristocratic background, and this is Stokely Carmichael. I'm quoting, and one of his first acts was to divide his father's land and give it to the peasantry.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on uh, because uh, there is a. Uh, a lot of tension right now in the former capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, where there is, uh, on Martin Luther King Day, there will be a large number of people from all across the country descending on uh, Richmond, Virginia, supposedly uh, demanding uh, gun rights. It's uh, supposed to be a pro-gun rally. But a lot of the raw elements of the white supremacy dynamic and militias have seized this opportunity and are planning to uh, come come to Richmond, and it forced the governor to declare a state of emergency, uh, banning all weapons, including sticks and baseball bats, uh, you know, from the Capitol grounds, because uh, they are saying they don't want a repeat of what happened in Charlottesville. So Donald Trump's FBI has been actually... (laughs) engaged in trying to arrest some of the, I guess the most uh, blatant or potentially violent of, of, of these people. So we put up a post called white supremacists are preparing for the collapse of the American empire and a race war. There's an organization named uh, called the, the Base. The Base is a collective of hardcore neo-Nazis that operate as a para, paramilitary organizations. Organization. Its organizers recruit fellow white supremacists online, particularly seeking out veterans because of their military training. The group has a motto Learn, Train, Fight. In encrypted chat rooms, members of the base have discussed committing acts of violence against blacks and Jews, ways to make improvised explosive devices, and their desire to create a white ethno state, the FBI has said in court papers. So on Friday, uh, after an undercover FBI agent infiltrated the base and participated in shooting drills in the mountains of northern Georgia, according to a police affidavit, uh, the drills were being uh, done in preparation for what they believe is an impending collapse of the United States and an ensuing race war. The arrest only added to the rising fears that the gun rally in Richmond on MLK Day could quickly devolve into violence, with thousands of protesters planning to descend on the Virginia Capitol, So what happened was they arrested, they arrested three, of, uh, member, three members of the base. One of them was a uh, ex-Canadian uh, military guy and another one was a former uh, U.S. Army uh, veteran. They arrested them uh, in, uh, I think, uh, Maryland. And uh, a day later they arrested these three guys in Georgia. Now, this to me and in, in my opinion this is very instructive because first of all it tells us that you have a group of people out there who who themselves these are white supremacists who believe that the american empire the united states the society is going to collapse and they're preparing for it now as the most powerless group in the country perhaps next to the indigenous people We would actually have nothing to do with the collapse. We weren't, we wouldn't be the cause of it. We're not, we're not the, uh, on the capitalists on wall street. We're not engaging in these wars, killing people all over the world, but we would be the targets because we always are. We're always the targets because we are the people they fear the most. So they will turn all their venom on us. They are preparing for this. This is a warning for our people to be prepared because this is coming. Now what the United what is what is the role of the United States government who initially was was uh, uh, expending a lot of energy tracking what they were calling black identity extremists. That was that was their, that was their initial plans. Now they have suddenly all of a sudden they have they have arrested these um, these uh, you know six members of this organization. The gullible among us would think, well, they're trying to prevent them from killing us. No. What they're trying to prevent is white-on-white violence, particularly by the state against these militias and against these uh, violent uh, terrorist white supremacist organizations. They don't want that to happen. They really could care less if if, if they attacked and killed us, just like... J. Edgar Hoover and Kennedy and Johnson didn't care the day when they were killing us uh, during the 1960s and 70s. Richard Nick, they, they didn't care about that. But the potential of white on white violence, particularly if the if the state is forced to gun down or engage in uh, gun gun uh, warfare with a bunch of these uh, militias then they fear that, uh, you know, it could lead to some form of a civil war and it would be white on white. So they are trying to prevent that. And uh, they just happen to choose Martin Luther King Day uh, to, you know, to have this rally. So, you know, this is something that we really need to be aware of while, you know, we're running around engaging in asinine arguments on Facebook, uh, gunning one another down in the streets, for no reason and these people are planning to gun us down so i mean this is something that we need to be aware of uh, because these people are they ain't no joke they yeah. are they ain't no joke whatsoever because a lot of them have military training they are proficient in you know in using these automatic weapons and and ieds and probably rpgs and all the kind of other stuff
2: well and to your point about the white-on-white violence. What you're seeing take place is you're seeing resources being allocated through the FBI to protect small hats. After the synagogue got shot up with those 11 uh, small hats, they said, no, we're gonna investigate and see what group this this guy who shot the synagogue up was a part of. So they went and they found a social media network for the white supremacists that this guy belonged to and started to do these investigations. Now these white supremacists were operating on what the FBI calls encrypted chat rooms. So they can't be too encrypted if they were to go in <laughs> and get these messages. But one of the things that they said on the chat room was there's no need to wait until all conditions for revolution exist. Guerrilla insurrection can create them. Insurgency begins as a terrorist campaign. So, these white boys are sending messages to each other, planning and plotting on how they're going to proceed. Another message says uh, that if, you, if you're approached by the police, to never be taken alive. So, as as Baba Makaru uh, stated, this is real preparation. Now, they got caught, so obviously they didn't operate as smart as they thought they were operating, thinking that they could send these messages and that the message wouldn't be seen. But this is what happens when you have uh, Jewish people who are willing to put up the funds to make sure that their people are protected. It's nothing more than than a distraction to do it around Martin Luther King Day to make these arrests because it makes it look like the government is trying to protect black people. They don't care about black people. No. That's been evident when you saw Dylan Roof shoot up Denmark Vesey's old church and not be labeled a terrorist, a domestic terrorist but the white guy who shot up the synagogue is labeled a domestic terrorist. So they did the exact same thing, which we consider a hate crime against another race or another group of people. The person who killed the black people, not a terrorist. The person who killed the small hats, a terrorist.
1: Yeah, and the same with the, uh, the couple up there. Uh, was it Newark or Jersey City? Yeah,
2: the, the, the Hebrew uh, Israelites, Israelites, former Hebrew Israelites who shot up the kosher grocery store were both labeled terrorists because they were killing people who have the funds and and, and the, the power to create a security system for themselves. So now this attention is being put on these people because they realize in the age of the rulership of Donald Trump, you have the idea that they could be targets, and they are being targets or targeted by these people with this mindset.
1: No doubt. Absolutely. Absolutely they absolutely they are. And you know, it, it's a very selective use of uh of uh of the term terrorism the same with the um the most recent incident which happened uh in New York with the brother that uh went into the home, he he only went in with a machete, but he went into the home of a of a rabbi of uh one of these um uh radical sex a Hasidic Jews uh, and and he was promptly labeled a terrorist also and they're trying to connect him of course to the Hebrew Israelites so but I, I think I think the thing that, that we have to be aware of is that is that when they when if, if, if they are moved to go after these guys this organization the base, you can better believe there's a move coming on some black organization, maybe the he- Hebrew Israelites or who vi- it's, it, it will be coming very quickly because, because see, what what they have to try to do is they have to have, they have to have a balancing act. They got it. They got it. They, they got to make sure that their base isn't too riled up by arresting these six white supremacists. So, I'm predicting right now that very quickly, as soon as they get past this, then then some black organization or some black people are are going to be arrested. uh, You know, using using these uh, same uh, what they call these uh, identity extremists or radicals. So if you claim racism, then you're going to be viewed as being out of your mind. Well, uh, you know that. Yeah, you know you uh, very very definitely very definitely we can expect if they have moved on six white supremacists, they're going to move on some black organization.
2: And 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 the, the last point I want to make, um, and this is just advice. These guys are talking about guerrilla warfare on insurgents. Guerrilla warfare or guerrilla warriors don't operate in the digital age. You can't be saying that you're going to operate within guerrilla warfare and you are Operating on a platform (laughs) that will allow you to get caught. What I know about guerrilla warfare is it's secret. Exactly. You go out in the bush away from society and you plan and then you come back and you operate covertly because the goal of guerrilla warfare is to be able to attack and win against people who have greater numbers than you. That's the whole purpose, to cause destabilization and to be able to fight strategically with limited amount of resources and limited amount of men to actually fight. So these guys were amateurs for using a platform to communicate the exact plans that they wanted to
1: To operate, yeah, and you know what they 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 uh, they built a machine gun. They ordered the they ordered the parts online and built a machine gun, and they 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 took it out to to a range, and the FBI set up a camera. A public range, uh, amateurs. (laughs) The FBI set up a camera at the range, and so they, they 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 were firing the weapon at the range. And uh, the guy from Canada said, "Ding," he said, "Look like I made a, a fully automatic weapon because it was it was firing so fast, right? Not not like you know the SK nines and you know the the uh, AR 15s that that you uh, that you that you buy on the streets. I mean that you can buy from gun store. Yeah, you can buy them on the streets too. But uh, so so, but they, but they'll learn from this. They they'll, learn, they'll, they'll learn. they they'll because the gu- because they were infiltrated. You see." uh the only way you can be totally successful is you can you can't have no above ground uh presence
2: at all or connections and we have to realize that there are some white supremacists who operate like that yeah and so yeah we can't look at this one thing we can't do is we can't start to feel comfortable and say oh the FBI arrests these people, so we're safe. No, nope. no, we have to stay prepared at all times because there are many white supremacists who will never operate above ground.
1: They got, they, you know, they they have sales. Look, like I said, most of these guys have military training. That's number one. A lot, m- many of them have been in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq and places like that. So, the these particular guys were some amateurs. I wouldn't
2: right. be surprised if it's a group of white supremacists that has has have successfully built a drone oh, that they can use to attack the United States military.
1: Yeah, it it, it wouldn't surprise me either. I mean, I I would I I wouldn't be surprised because they because they 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 have the training. They 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 have the training and. A lot of them, a lot of them have, you know, IT skills and all kinds of engineering skills and 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 everything else. You may have but, the finances too? And they have the finances, but the, the the main thing for us to understand is that they are preparing. What are we doing? They they are preparing. What what are we doing? But I, I do want to get to partying the partying and BSing. Yeah, and killing one another. The Maryland, uh, the 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 black prosecutors. Uh, they are fighting the new Jim Crow from within. Everybody who has read the New Jim Crow knows that Professor Michelle Alexander makes one very critical point. She says in within the law enforcement system of the United States, the prosecutor is the most powerful element because the prosecutor can decide whether to uh, file charges, what kind of charges to file, et cetera. Et cetera. It, it, it's just like the brother that just got 12 years for using his cell phone in jail in Mississippi. 12, he he was he was arrested for a misdemeanor charge, and uh, he sneaked a cell phone in. They caught him with the cell phone, and he got 12 years. and the and the and the and the one black Supreme Court uh, justice in Mississippi said that the prosecutor could have chosen not to do this because, first of all, it shows some kind of incompetence on the part of the police that he was able to sneak. Did was he told that he couldn't bring a cell phone in? But but, but so, so these, these uh, sisters only a handful of them. Mm-hmm. St. Louis's first black prosecutors fighting back this, this week circuit uh, attorney Kimberly Gardner filed a federal lawsuit against her entire city leadership, accusing its mostly white police force and political establishment of engaging in racially motivated, a racially motivated conspiracy to drive her out of office and block her efforts to make the city's justice system less punitive towards people of color. Gardner, who took office in 2017, is hardly alone in facing opposition. Many other recently er elected increasingly progressive district attorneys around the country have run into entrenched resistance from conservative, often white police officers and their unions, judges, governors and even the attorney general of the United States. And black women prosecutors in particular have experienced a targeted, vehement form of defiance and intimidation. It's already enough to drive change in the criminal justice system, but then to be a black woman who make up just 1% of elected prosecutors. Uh, Marilyn uh, Mosby said, uh, the disrespect would look different. The, di- the disrespect would look different if I look different. It's extremely personal. The first thing they come at you with is you're a black woman is your competency. This is why this lawsuit is symbolic. Uh, for all of us. Now, she's, she's one of several. Uh, obviously, uh, Marilyn Mosby uh, is, is another. The blowback to Gardner came as she tried to rein in police misconduct in part by refusing to prosecute cases brought to her by cops with a documented history of lying, abuse, or corruption. That is a very bold move to be within the system and decide that if you got a history... Mm-hmm. of abuse, yes, of sir. lying and corruption, don't even bring the cases to me. It was just like Marilyn Mosby made it said, look, don't bring me no marijuana cases. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not prosecuting them. So a police union spokesman called her a menace to society who must be removed by force. Then she received stacks of letters calling her a dumb N-word, B-word, and a N-word cunt. And saying you're not going to beat these white boys, they're telling her straight up you're not going to beat these white boys. Um, then there's the sister in uh, in uh, in Orlando. Orlando, yeah. um, she uh, said that she would no longer seek the death penalty. Later that same day, the state's then governor uh, Rick Scott took the highly unusual step of of reassigning a high-profile death penalty case from Ayala. Her name is Aramis Ayala to a prosecutor from another county, so that she could no longer have it. Uh, a month later, she received a noose in the mail. Okay, so I mean, is this going you know, it's got uh, Kim Fox in Chicago, uh, uh, Rachel uh, Rollings in Boston, um, you know, Mosby who stepped up to uh, uh, try to prosecute the police who in the killing of uh, of uh, Freddie Gray. And, and, and others so uh, so you have some very courageous sisters who are trying to operate within the system being prosecutors they're the most powerful force and they, they, they're trying to reduce the huge amount of injustices taking place and obviously they're coming they're coming under un, under attack
0: brother if you can uh talk to us again about the term you used the other day when I was talking to you the recapitulation of reconstruction
1: well i think and I, I think a lot of other uh historians believe that the the period that that we are in now is is comparative to the overthrow of reconstruction okay so so reconstruction uh, the dates are not Defined because you still had black people being elected to office after, you know, the dates I'm going to cite. But basically between the end of the Civil War in 1865 until the compromise of 1877, the United States had an opportunity to become a multiracial democracy. Uh, There were a group of of white politicians known as the Radical Republicans, uh, led by uh, Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner who produced more civil rights legislation than any group of politicians in the history of this country. And some some of these laws are still being used today. For example, um, it said, uh, where we, let me, Gardner, the the sister in St. Louis, suits sites, a rarely used federal law from just after the Civil War that allowed the U.S. government to crack down on the Ku Klux Klan and other groups in August, that St. Louis has been acting just like such an organization as the Ku Klux Klan. The St. Louis police officers and uh, and officials have denied these allegations. So she's she's using uh, one of the uh, there there were two enforcement acts because what what the Radical Republicans realized that was happening in the South was that these uh, paramilitary organizations like the Ku Klux Klan were being organized by former Confederate uh, generals and, and fighters like Nathan Bedford Forrest. And they were engaging in, in acts of terrorism to take away the, the few rights that, uh, that the black people had, g- had gained as a result of the end of the, of the Civil War. And so this, this went on for about 12 years until finally there was a contested presidential election and they reached a compromise and the compromise required that the federal troops that were enforcing these laws in the South be pulled out. Once the federal troops were pulled out, many, many black communities were actually being protected by black soldiers in the South during this time. Once the troops were pulled out, then that gave organizations like the Ku Klux Klan and the Red Shirts and these other organizations a free reign of terror. And, and that's what ensued during that during that period of time. Now, This particular period of time, we have not reached that level of violence, like the Colfax massacre, you know, for example, uh, in Louisiana in 1876. We haven't reached that level of violence, but the mindset is there. The mindset is there. There, there There is a general assault on people of African descent, once again, in this country, because for some reason it it was perceived that we had made progress by electing uh, the most brilliant stroke of disguised democracy in American political history, otherwise known as uh, the real slim shade of Barack Obama. A lot a lot of, of white supremacists, Dylan Roof and others saw this as, as progress for black people and they, and they said we got to organize against it. The average black person is benefiting one, one iota, but you know, we'll be the ones who who will receive the brunt of it. So we are in, you know, a similar period of time in term if if we look at the history of the overthrow of Reconstruction, we're in a similar period of time here in in uh in, you know, say twenty fifteen through the period of right now.
2: You know, I, I I saw you post uh France Fanon's book, The Wretched of the Earth. Uh, I don't know if it was this week or last week on uh, Facebook, and one of the things Frantz Fanon talks about in that book is where he eloquently describes violence, the benefits of violence. One of the things he says is violence is a way for man to recreate himself. Right now, Europeans, they feel as though all of their privileges are being stripped away, and they feel like they are Ostracized and colonized, mm-hmm. and Franz Fanon mentioned in the book that the person who was colonized must use violence in order to recreate themselves and pretty much start over. And right now, that's what you are seeing coming in waves from Europeans.
1: Yeah, and the thing, of, and the thing of it is, is that, is that. You know, if you go on a tour like Chris Hedges or if you go going a tour like, you know, Gullah Jack, you know, out through, uh, you know, Western North Carolina where all of these mills, uh, textile mills and all of these factories have been closed. Not by us, by the oligarchs on on Wall Street who decided that uh, it would be more profitable to move these jobs to what they call low cost geographies. And so the the. These people who, who thought they were moving up, you know, and they had, you know, middle class ambitions, you know, was, was taken away by the capitalist class. But the focus of their anger is on us. <laughs> and we have no power. Anyway, uh, this has been another edition of the African Liberation Media you can follow us on Facebook. The, this podcast that we produce today will be published uh, on Martin Luther King Day, so check us out and keep supporting us. And we'll try to keep producing this information. Bibi Fodier,
0: Bibi Fodier, power
3: or the lack of power. I want to repeat this: power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power not jobs because your jobs do not represent power not getting elected that does not represent power either you are buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power if it is not about real power you are being miseducated and misled and you will die educated and misled If your study of Black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history, then, must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important. But ultimately, those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.